Good morning again, everyone. Before I begin the message, we thought we should take just a moment and, and once again pray for our world, especially with all that's taking place in Europe and Paris right now. Will you pray with me? Father, to you uh, we lean. You who said you have all authority in heaven and on earth. We pray that you will bring comfort, help, and hope to all those who have lost loved ones in the terrorist bombings. We pray, Lord, that you will give wisdom to the nations. We pray, God, that you will stop the rampant killing and the shedding of blood simply because people don't believe the same things. You know how to answer this prayer better than I know how to give it, and so we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Been a sobering weekend, hasn't it? Uh, this morning, uh, I'm glad to be with you, and the topic that I am to bring to us is to talk about something we really haven't done a lot of thinking about in the last couple of months. And it has to do with the very first chapter and the very first book of the precious Bible that we believe in. It's Thursday afternoon, I'm sitting there, I'm reading uh, Genesis chapter 1, and the first thing that hit me is God talks about a lot of things before he gets to us. And I thought we were the center of the universe. Maybe not. So, uh, <laughs> so you've, you've got that whole creation narrative. It's absolutely stunning. It's God creating all of, of, of the creation. You've got lights and stars and galaxies and mountains and trees and oceans, birds, and I can't help but think of bird songs, winds that sing, waters that roar, animals, honeybees, that the creation of God is magnificent. And the Bible tells us that after God had created all that, he thought it was good. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. There it is. And God saw that it was good. Now, I enjoy reading people like C.S. Lewis and a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. And in both of their fantasy genres, when they talk about the creation of the world, they suggest that the Creator kind of sang creation into existence, almost as if uh, every part of creation was a part of this great symphony and chorus that God was creating, and it glorifies him in its beauty and its perfection. So I'm going to try this. I don't know if it will work or not. If it doesn't, we'll blame it on somebody else. All right, but just imagining God in the creation of the world. I see trees of green. Go ahead, left, left. Red roses, too. Just imagine. I see them bloom for me, for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed days, dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see some of you sing it with me. You're too young. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Louis Armstrong did it originally. Remember how he ends that great song? He put a benediction on it. He just goes, 
God put a benediction on it. God said, it is good. All right. It was good, but it wasn't finished. Every great symphony, every great chorus has what we call the featured performer. And God wasn't done in his creation of all things. The featured performer was about to enter. And for that, we look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Two things I want you to note there. God says we will make mankind in our image, in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that when we were brought on the scene, there was something special. And one of the specialities of us is we would become the featured performer on our planet. It says there, and I had it capitalized, humankind rule the earth. Another word for that is manage. The first injunction that we got was to rule manage the earth. And just a little bit farther in the second chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, 15, God adds a little more, if you will, understanding of what that management is. Chapter 2, 15 says this, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. To work it and to care for it. Created in God's likeness, if you will, now placed in the garden to manage the earth, and it says specifically to work it and to care for it. It's kind of got the notion of gardeners, if you will, that this whole earth is ours to maintain and to nurture and to care for. I had a person come up to me after the first hour, just moved here from Montana where he was a potato farmer. He said, I didn't know I was going to come to Chicago and find out that I'm still supposed to be a farmer. <laughs> to care for and tend the earth. Manage, and the way you manage it is to care for and keep the earth, to work it, to cultivate it. Land, waters, air, animals, vegetation, and yes, the honeybees. And I posit even the skies, as far as our technology will take us, we're supposed to do this. Adam was so involved in it, he was even called to name all the animals. God said, I'll take care of the stars, right? Doesn't the Bible say that God calls every star by its name? And he said, humankind, govern all that is on the earth. When God did that, then he adds a word to his benediction. And it comes from Genesis 1.31. And God says, all that he had made, it was very good. The symphony, the chorus of creation, every tree, every bush, every red rose, humankind, 
caring for and keeping the earth. Nothing, no one on earth has more of a role to manage the world, to work it and care for it than God's people. That's a big theme of today. From the very beginning, when God said, I'm making it all, I'm placing humankind here to care for it, then God says, very, very good. Okay? And it was. It was great. Everything on earth and in the heavens worked perfectly, and, and humans managed, and they directed it under the leadership of the owner, the Lord God himself. We find this in the wonderful garden passages of chapter 2 and even parts of chapter 3. But then something went terribly wrong. Carrying through with the symphony sort of sound, the music was right, each sound was pure and perfect until the featured performer stepped away from the orchestra and decided that he would make his own music. Did that work? I'm using a garden metaphor and I'm using a music metaphor. Adam and Eve did the one thing they were said not to do. And they took of that tree in the center of the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing God sent, said don't do. And by that one act, everything began to crumble. Everything began to decay. You see, the manager wanted to be the owner. And as one commentator says, and with fruit juices running down their chins from the forbidden fruit, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in his garden. Well, some of you know what happens. Those of you that are new and just investigating Christianity, maybe you don't know, but all the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the music of creation is now lost. And in the third chapter of Genesis, we have it for you on the screen, verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. To Adam he said, because you've listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. And then look at these words, everybody. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Remember that great old song of Kansas, All we are is dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Oh. It seems severe that one act against God's command would start to unleash the brokenness of everything, the decay of everything, humans, governments, and everything in creation. And so now I utter words like earthquakes 
cyclones, floods, droughts, murder, wars, cancer, diseases, ozone poisoning, melting ice in the Arctics, scorched lands, diminishing waters, on and on and on it goes. Thorns and thistles, painful toil, cursed is the ground until the end. Feels kind of harsh. But is it really? Whenever humans, and I, I'm one of them, I know I don't look like it. I look like a lumberjack today. <laughs> but whenever humans, listen closely, whenever humans place themselves in God's position, there are horrible consequences. Think of your own life. I think of my life. Whenever I place myself in charge in anything, there are horrible consequences. I'm not sure, but I actually think the reason that God put the tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to eat is because they needed to know from the very beginning that they weren't in command. And yet they wanted to be. Satan says, take of this. God knows when you do, you will be like God. That's been our problem from the garden. Right? And everything starts unwinding. And it's scary. You read Genesis 3, uh, 15 through 17, 17 through 19. It is scary. Is there any hope? Or do we just kind of endure this thing till it all wipes out and we have cataclysm? The answer to that is categorically no. And I'm going to show you why. Please take your Bibles, if you have them with you, open now to the New Testament, the time following the life of Jesus Christ, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 happens to be my favorite verse in a chapter in all the scriptures and part of the reason is because of what I'm going to read with you now. Chapter 8, you will find it on page 1133 if you want to use the Bibles we provide for you in the seat backs. Okay, so we've moved ahead many thousands and thousands of years and now this is after Jesus Christ has lived, died, and risen from the dead and he has inaugurated his church and people who love him, and he starts to send them out through the earth. One of the greatest passers-on of the gospel story was a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. He writes Romans. Here we go, chapter 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Interesting. Our present sufferings, are we suffering? Yes. Is the creation suffering? Yes. He's got that right. But look what he says. No matter how bad it is, it's nothing compared to what will be revealed in us. Hold on to that. It, it, it's got the shimmer of hope, doesn't it? Next verse. For the creation waits in eager expectation 
for the children of God to be revealed. Pause. The creation. At this point, Paul's not talking about people as much as he's talking about everything in the created order. And he says, the whole creation is waiting for something in eager expectation. And then it says, it's waiting for the children of God to be revealed. There's that shimmering hope thing again. What's it mean? Carry on. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Now one uh, translation has there, instead of frustration, it says futility. The creation was subjected to futility. We know that. That's what Genesis 3 was about. Thorns and thistles, dust in the wind. It was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who's that, everybody? It's God. That one act, any act that elevates man above God results in consequences. That one act unleashed the curse that has fallen on the whole world. Creation was subjected to this, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In, and here we go, hope. I don't see much hope in that. In hope that the creation, verse 21, itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The all of creation waiting like a child for Christmas morning for something to happen, to change everything that's wrong and move it toward all the trees are shimmering with hope. It's got something to do with being released from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. Something's about to be revealed. It has to do with children of God. That's now been mentioned twice in the passage. Keep going. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now that's a little different. Our first portrait of creation was that it was waiting in anticipation. Now it says that waiting is groaning. The seas are growing, groaning, the land is groaning, the air is groaning, we are groaning. Because that's what it says in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Groaning. That's a great descriptor for life, isn't it? I know that a lot of you came in here with a bucket load of sorrows. That's part of the reason you come to church. You, you want to get a little hope. I just want you to know your pastors carry the same things. We're all groaning while we're in these bodies. And what I'm trying to say is it ain't just us. It's creation itself. But they're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And now look at verse 24. 
And just notice here how the word hope is used five times in one verse. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they've already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Hope is believing in things we can't yet see. And this text, the Apostle Paul tells us, says that something is happening on some day at a given moment that's going to result in groaning human beings becoming the sons of God they are meant to be, becoming the daughters of God they are meant to be. I believe that this passage is pointing forward to what we call the resurrection of the body at the end of all things. When everything that's wrong in me will be made right. Do you remember when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? you remember what that was like? you remember what he was in his resurrection body? The Bible makes it pretty clear at the end of all things, all who know and love and claim Jesus Christ will be given restored, renovated bodies. I can hardly wait. But it isn't just us says all of creation. The atoms will work appropriately when Jesus returns. The ground will produce wonderfully when Jesus returns. And Paul says while we are groaning, us in creation, we hope and we hope and we hope for that. Pretty good, huh? I can hardly wait. Maybe we can just close our Bibles, move to the mountains, and wait for the apocalypse. (laughs) Sometimes I want to do that. But you know what? If we did that, we would be breaking the first of all the commands. Manage the earth. Keep it. Care for it. Get it ready. There's another phrase in this passage that I just love in my favorite chapter of the Bible, and you see it couched there in the middle of verse 23. Now, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the, do you see it there? First fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit. In other words, this adoption into sonship, this revealing of the sons and the daughters of God, something about it has already begun, and Paul calls it, we have the first fruits of it right now. Not the final fruits, the first fruits. And it has to do, Paul says, with the coming of God the Spirit, who takes up residency inside those that love him. And as first fruits, they now engage in the spreading of his kingdom advance throughout the whole world. I just love that. And so while we might want to just buy a cabin in the mountains and wait for the apocalypse, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 says, no way. We have a role here. And Romans 8 says we've even been given God the Spirit dwelling within us to start making a difference to head out there, to get at it, 
That's what we've been talking about for 10 weeks. Every week when Pastor Rob's been here or Chris, they've been talking about deep social need issues that we got to do something about. Lon's here to say, hey, we got to keep the rest of creation going in order to get any of that done. And we have a command. First fruits. First fruits. Why? Well, it's quite simple, really. Because, quite honestly, if we don't take care of creation, we won't sustain life. And that's the first point I want to make. Why does God want us to care for the earth? It, it, it sustains all of life. Air, land, water, food and shelter. I remember seeing a 60 Minutes thing where they were showing about the air quality in China right now. They're really in for it over there. They haven't been stewards of the air. A, a couple of years ago, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is why I wore a lumberjack shirt today. <laughs> and when I was going up, I was so excited because I had bought the book by Ernest Hemingway called The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which is a short story. And I read it going up the mountain each night under the lamp. And on the picture, on the cover, it showed all of these great glaciers at the top of Kilimanjaro, 20,000 feet high. I couldn't wait. But when we got there, there was only one glacier, and it was very small. It's all gone. In 50 years, it's gone. It's gone. I said, why? There was a stupid scientist up there with us. Facetiously, he said, not stupid. He started talking about, I said, what is it? What happened? He says, biodiversity. I go, hmm, is that in the Bible? <laughs> but he slowly helped me understand how everything on the planet works together in this perfect balance that God created so that, so that when Kenya started destroying its great forests in order to produce more cropland, it was a good attempt, that it suddenly changes not only the land, it changes the whole air mixture and changes the air mixture with carbon dioxide versus oxygen. And, and, and so temperature goes up where it wouldn't have been. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. I don't pretend to know all the whys of it. I don't even know how bad it is. And I don't know how much we're responsible for it. You know what? It really doesn't matter because we are responsible to take care of it according to God. And that's just one example. I'm very concerned about fresh water. That's the one I know a little bit more about. I know that 700 million people in the, from 43 countries of the world are in water scarcity right now. It's believed that within 10 years, it'll be 2 billion people in fresh water scarcity. And by 2050, it's two-thirds of the population. I don't know the answers but I know we have a responsibility. So the reason we care for creation is because we're told to, and secondly, it sustains all human life. Second reason we, we care for creation is because creation assists witness. <laughs> Haven't you seen God in the stars? I don't mean literally, ah, I thought that was the man on the moon. It's probably God. No, I don't mean that. But I mean the beauty of nature 
A few years ago, I got asked to speak at an organization called the Evangelical Environmental uh, Association. And I said to them, why are you inviting me? What I care about is human beings who are broken and bruised and bleeding and full of sin coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you want me there? And they said, well, Lon, how, how did you come to know Jesus? And I told about the people in my life. And then I go, oh. Because I remember a day on Mount Diablo when I was 16 years old in Walnut Creek, California in the autumn when the oaks were shimmering. And I remember reading Thoreau and listening to Dylan and trying to make sense out of the universe and I was so thunderstruck by the beauty of creation I thought there has to be a beautiful designer of all this now I knew why they wanted me to speak at the Evangelical Environmental Association I want beauty everywhere because it shows the glory of God third why creation care provides rest <laughs> we're some pretty anxiety driven weird folks on this planet last year it was a day in March I was all stressed out uh, and I can tell because I even start getting numbness in my face and my limbs when I'm under too much stress so I jumped in my car got on North Avenue headed due west into the cornfields snow on the ground ended up at white pines park somewhere out there and i just slowed everything down and i walked in the woods and i kind of felt like the woods were my elders if you will first of all taller than i am but in a sense the pristine beauty of creation the quietness of the air the blueness of the skies, I found that God was using his creation to free me from all I was carrying. And so I want to say this. As we restore the earth, the earth restores us. That's why I want little cabin in the woods. <laughs> Finally, we're involved in creation care because creation care defeats Satan. I love what one author wrote. God does not surrender his good creation to evil. He owns it all. And he set us to do something about it. Well, what can we do? What can we do? I don't know. We can do something. As I was looking at my friend David, who is a, who is a geologist, a scientist, these guys are going to figure some of these bigger issues out. It was my job to tell you God said this from the very beginning. We were supposed to do this. And so here's a few common things from a less than scientific soul, but who loves Jesus and his creation. One, conserve better. I'm going to put a picture up here now. I'm hoping it comes because it's going to display our church. Yeah. Have you seen that sign on our church property? Conservation at work. Friends, if you haven't taken time to walk the mile loop around our church, you will see that this church in its design created such a beautiful 
area of trees and growth and brush and native plants and birds. It's absolutely stunning. And right there, it says we are conservation at work. And we're all to be people, conservation at work. Conservation at home. The water thing is really important. Marie's been telling me this for years. Uh, because I like to brush my teeth with the water running. Yeah, Tony's going, no. Uh, and she says, you're wasting water. I said, no, it, otherwise the sink gets all gummed up. She says, you're wasting water. One time she reached over and she turned it off. And I turned it on. <laughs> and I said, you use more water washing your face than I do brushing my, you know. And so we were having a godly conversation. <laughs> but we both need to do better. Water is precious. Energy is precious. The world's helped us with a lot of ways. We know we can do better with lights. You know that. We've now got LEDs. Uh, incidentally, everybody, you, you're going to see this place light up at Christmas. 27 million LED lights will adorn, not that many. <laughs> Exaggerating a little bit. Uh, <laughs> come by my house. I love to decorate outdoors. It's an LED, LED zone because we've learned how to produce light with a lot less energy, haven't we? Just things like that. Recycling. Favorite piece of furniture in my house is that great, big, huge recycle bin. I just love it. Anything and everything. We can all do something. We can all do more. Conserve. Secondly, learn. Learn. I've started reading more. I'm fortunate, to, I'm looking at Mike, I'm looking at Dave, I, I have some scientific friends, and they help me learn things. I, I started reading National Geographic more, I, I watch certain shows, I, and, and I, I learned something just really recently. I don't know if this is true or not, but they said on one of those shows that if we could capture all of the energy of the sun for one hour, it would provide all the energy the whole planet needs for one year. Whoa! Ready to head in a spaceship to make it so. <laughs> There's so much we can learn. We should be learners. Why? Because, gang, God said, first thing, this is our job. Pray. Pray for those that are in the positions of leadership, that are having to make tough decisions. Did you know that world leaders are gathering in Vienna this week to discuss these issues? Do we pray for our scientists to get breakthroughs and to not be gripped by greed in order to make whatever can be developed to help care for this world applied and given to everyone in the world? That's where the church comes in. Whatever we find is for everybody in the world. And finally, lead out. Perhaps there are some young scientists sitting here, young marketplace leaders, even homemakers, tradespersons. Whatever God's calling you to in your life, 
realize that you carry as a part of your job description the care of our world. Well, I'm going to close now. I thought I'd recite from the anthem of my generation, August 15th, 1969. Joni Mitchell wrote this. We are stardust. We are golden. And we got caught in the devil's bargain. And now we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Sung by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yes, I know. Better yet, let me close this way. We've not only been commanded to do this, we have a hint from a moment in history where God made it even more clear. When Jesus Christ came out of that stone-hewn rock called the tomb, and the stone was pushed aside, where was he standing? In a garden. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which started turning everything that was breaking down, moving us always in reverse, when Jesus rose from the dead, he put it into first gear, and he says, here I come. No mistake, it was in the garden. God is in the garden again. Let's join him. Please pray with me. And so, Father, we come to you because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us your caretakers, your gardeners for our world and glorify your name. Amen and amen.